0: Teichman, and with me today is Greg Salmieri, a fellow at the Anthem Foundation who teaches philosophy at Rutgers University, and who co-edited A Companion to Ayn Rand in the Blackwell Companions to Philosophy series, and Foundations of a Free Society, which is out from University of Pittsburgh Press. Today, he is here to discuss egoism and altruism. Greg Salmieri, welcome back to Elucidations. Thank you. It's great to be back. So I think egoism isn't a term that everybody's necessarily always come across, even not necessarily in a philosophy class. So what exactly does egoism mean?
1: Well, the word's been used for a number of related theories. I I think the kind of central idea to start with, to get a a grip on all of them and how they're related, is the idea of an action being egoistic. And an action is egoistic if it's ultimately motivated by the agent's own well-being. The agent is the person taking the action, that's how we use that term in ethics, So there's a person taking an action, and he has a goal that he's trying to achieve by taking the action. And if that goal is ultimately to benefit himself, the action's egoistic, as opposed to the goal being to help someone else, to um, obey some kind of a duty, or just him not having much of a goal at all. And what we're talking about here is the ultimate goal of an action, So, you know, you might do one thing for the sake of something else and that second thing for the sake of a third, but this chain, you know, comes to an end somewhere. And so we're talking about the ultimate goal. So you might well be acting to help someone else, but because you think that doing this will somehow enrich your life, or you might be acting to help yourself, but only because you think it'll fit you to be a better servant of God or a better servant of other people or help you to better do your duty. Whether an action is egoistic or not egoistic is a matter of what the ultimate goal is. In the final analysis, why are you doing this? And is it to benefit yourself? And if so, it's an egoistic action. And then the various theories that have been called egoism make claims about actions either that they all are egoistic or that they all ought to be egoistic or that they... um are all egoistic insofar as they're generally the agent's own action as opposed to being motivated by some kind of neurosis or something. We can give different names to these theories. So the the theory that all actions are egoistic, that no one ever acts for any reason other than self-interest, is sometimes called psychological egoism. The theory that all someone's genuine actions, as opposed to like compulsions or nervous tics they have, Sometimes that's called egoism about reasons or rational egoism, although that term is also used in another way that we'll discuss. And then the theory that I'm interested in and that I endorse and that some of the people I study are proponents of is ethical egoism. Uh, That is the theory that central to what makes an action good, what makes it right, what makes it moral, is that it benefits the person taking it.
0: Okay, nice. So maybe just to make sure that I'm clear on this idea of an ultimate action. Uh, It seems like what we're talking about there is like for any given thing that you're doing, like why are you really doing it? You know? So for instance, let's say I'm going to meet my friend in Philadelphia and like I could take the five Oh five train or the 510 train. And either way I'd get to meet my friend in Philadelphia. Um, Let's say I do take the five Oh five train. It seems like it would be silly to imagine that I'm like taking the five Oh five train specifically as an end in itself. Like, no, I don't care about this exact train the only reason I care about it is because it's going to get me to my friend and I, what I want to do is see my friend. But then once we get to me seeing my friend, it seems like we could kind of ask the same question about that. Well, okay, but why really do I want to see my friend? So then, and as we keep ascending this, like, why am I really doing this chain and getting to a further and further bigger kind of life goal of mine, if we eventually stop and we get to the main thing that I'm doing everything for, maybe that's like an ultimate goal. Is, is that a good way to understand it? Or?
1: Well, I, I get you could understand it that way, but I, the word really gives me pause because it's not as though you don't really want to get on that train. It's just there's a reason why you want to get on that train. Part of why I'm skeptical about or reticent about the word really is, you know, there's this idea, you get it sort of in Plato's Symposium, that you love someone or something. And then we could say why you love them. And suppose the answer is they're beautiful. That's the kind of answer you get in Plato's Symposium, in any case. Well, then what you really love is beauty, not the person. And if you could just encounter beauty pure, uninfected by the human flesh and whatever else, as Plato says, that it's got in the person, you would love it more. And regardless of the details of Plato's view of beauty and that it's beauty that you love someone for, I think there's something wrong about this way of thinking of something. You love a concrete person, right, or a concrete thing, and we can give some account of what it is about it that makes you love them. But that doesn't mean that you then love only that thing that's specified in the account, not the concrete that you love on account of those features specified in the account. And I think likewise, if you value, say, getting on a concrete train, and there's a a reason for that, it's not necessarily that what you value is that reason rather than the train. Now, in some cases, as with this train case, it's plausible to say that because another train's coming along in just a moment. And if you miss this train and get on the next one, you won't be or feel yourself to be any worse off. And so we might think you're indifferent to which train it is. But if we take a more significant value, like you love a certain job or a certain person or a certain house that you live in or a certain artwork I think there, too, we can specify why you love it, why it's good for you, and the account that we would give in those kinds of cases would really be explanatory of its value to you, what contribution does it make to your life, in a way that wouldn't make it sort of fungible, and we'd say that really what you value is these other things we're referencing in the account.
0: Okay, right, so it's not that getting this train isn't really a goal of mine. It's that I'm not getting the train just in order to get the train. I'm getting it in order to do some further thing. Um, So then if we ask this question, what am I doing this thing in order to accomplish further? Uh, We keep asking that. And if we keep asking that and the thing we get to at the end is in order to benefit myself, then the thing I did was egoist.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. The action was egoistic in that case. But but. We're going to have to think a lot about what it really means to benefit yourself, what's good for you. And as we'll see, there are different views of the answer to this question. Uh, So the egoism is not really one theory so much as it is a, um, even ethical egoism, a description of a type of moral theory. And likewise, for psychological egoism uh, or any of the other kinds of egoism, they are descriptions of a type of theory that explains something in terms of self-interest. But then there's a question of, well, what is self-interest
0: anyway? Right. So, yeah, like in a way, it's like we could slot in our preferred account of what it is to benefit yourself into this and come up with different views depending on what you think it really is to be good for yourself. Maybe I think to benefit yourself is to have lots of ice cream and uh, experiencing the pleasure of the great taste of the ice cream and someone else thinks benefiting myself is working out really hard and having a a really fit physique. And like, so, so to the extent that there's a debate about what benefiting yourself ultimately is, uh, there can be different variations on egoism.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And just, you know, here are some accounts of what benefiting oneself is. We can think of it as like benefiting yourself is trying to attain your own well-being or your self-interest or what's good for you or your good. These are all different expressions we could use for the same thing. But what is it? What is good for you or for someone? What is someone's good? What is their well-being? What is their self-interest? Well, One account is it's whatever gives them the most pleasure, right? That's hedonism about self-interest. Another account is that it's fulfilling all of their present desires, or maybe fulfilling as many of their desires over time as possible, or the greatest proportion of their desires. Other kinds of accounts try to give a, a list of things. They think they know what's good for human beings in general, and you're a human being, and as many of the things on this list you can tick off, or the proportion of the things on the list that you can tick off, uh, that's your well-being. And I think those are the three uh, or three of the main categories of them. Also, this last one sometimes run together with the previous one, fulfilling your nature as a human being. There's the idea that there's kind of certain thing that we're meant to mature into or realize our capabilities and the extent to which you do that is the extent to which you have well-being. So these are some of the traditional theories on it. My own view on it is sort of based on my understanding of Ayn Rand's view and a little bit different from all of those. We'll talk more about the details later, but has elements of a few of them.
0: So we talked about this a little bit in your earlier appearance in the program. And um, if people want the detailed answer, they can kind of re-listen to that episode. That was uh, episode 73 on uh, Ayn Rand's moral philosophy. But just for people who are coming at this for the first time, can it ever be the right thing to do, to do something just to benefit yourself? Like, Isn't that just, uh, don't we just automatically think that that's evil or wrong? We teach kids not to be selfish, to share their toys with each other, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, well, there are two questions. Can it ever be and can it always be? Right. And I think most moral philosophers would regard what you said we teach our kids, you know, never be selfish, never do things just for yourself and so forth, as a, a straw man of what either contemporary mores are or what uh, moral philosophers say. I do think it is a straw man of what moral philosophers say. That if you look at theories of ethics, you'll find very few people who say never do anything ever for yourself. I think it's much less of a straw man of how we actually teach kids. That was selfish. Don't do this for yourself. You're only thinking of yourself as, you know, almost always a pejorative. Yeah. But... I think, you know, if we just think about moral common sense and and the reason why most moral philosophers would say it's a straw man to say that any ethical theory says you should never do anything for yourself, is there are lots of things that we admire that people do uh, for themselves. They are ambitious, they support themselves. If someone's, you know, in an abusive relationship and leaves the relationship, we think, you know, that's good. She's you know, or he stood
0: up for himself or a um, big talking point within feminism these days is uh, self care. Yeah. Um, as a resistant, as a way of resisting the patriarchy, which tr- pressures you into not caring about yourself.
1: Yeah, and not only in feminism, but you know, I'm uh, my, my wife's pregnant, and we're reading a lot of parenting books, and I guess this connects to feminism because most primary caretakers are women, but. Um, regardless of who the primary caretaker is, there's a lot now with these books about don't, you know, take care of yourself. Your kid's not going to be better off and no one's going to be better off if you're making a martyr to yourself for to be what you imagine is the perfect parent. The perfect parent isn't a, some kind of put-upon slave. Um, I don't think we think people should never care for themselves, but I do think people think the idea is that it's always moral to do what's best for yourself. That, I think, strikes people as very counterintuitive. And, well, why is that? Well, I think there are two reasons. I think the the content of conventional morality that we're brought up with prizes non-selfish, non-egoistic, sacrificial actions. They're given a kind of special moral weight or halo around them. I think that's why... Um, there's a need for this kind of advice uh, as part of feminism, as part of parental training, as part of other things, you know, care for yourself. It's a kind of pushback against something that's big in the culture, and we can talk about why that is. But there's a sense of, like, this is what's moral about um, morality. And I think a lot of things that are thought to be moral that are sacrificial are not moral. But then there's also a lot of things that I think genuinely are moral, are demanding, require a lot of work, require struggle, require doing things that might not be what you feel like doing in the moment. And particularly if we're not clear on what self-interest is, it's not, these actions certainly aren't obviously self-interested. If they are self-interested, if they are egoistic, it's going to be the output of a view of what's good for you to say that they are. And so integrating these actions that we find admirable with our understanding of what's good for ourselves is, you know, something to be accomplished by a moral philosophy. If That moral philosophy is egoistic. It's not something that should be obvious out of the gate.
0: So let me just to take a quick kind of crude example. Um, let's say that I'm like a con artist and all, all I ever do is go around and cheat people out of their money. And as a result, at the end of the day, I have lots of money and lots of Lamborghinis. Is that an egoist type of life to lead?
1: Well, I don't think it is. Uh, I don't think it's good for you. It's just like, Why do you want these Lamborghinis? What are you getting out of them? What are you giving up by being dishonest in these ways? What kind of a life are you leading? Why do you value that life? And we can think about it sort of internally. What is your psychology like? I think people like that are generally miserable. But then we can think about why is it? Why would we expect that kind of a life to lead to someone being miserable? Well... Think about what are the kind of values that comprise a human life and make life worth living for a human being and that indeed sustain a person in life. And having Lamborghinis is sort of not one of them. I mean, you got to have a way to get around. And a Lamborghini could have some aesthetic value. So I'm not saying, you know, don't buy one if you're in a position to be able to and you find you really love that car. But, you know, your 18th probably is very minor marginal value in your life, even your second and even your first. (laughs) Um, whereas having relationships with people where they can trust you and you trust them, where they can know the real story of how you got what you got and not feel like you're a threat to them, I think is much more valuable than, you know, another fancy car or even a first fancy car. And moreover, I don't think it's an accident that thieves are people who are living outside the law. It's not just, and that living outside the law is dangerous, and it's not true that people typically get away with stealing all these, you know, all this money for all this time. And when they do get away with it, I think they you know, know in some way that their lives are perilous. I think Thomas Hobbes' theory of uh, well-being is too crude. I don't think it's right. Hobbes thinks basically he's a subjectivist about well-being and he thinks, he doesn't use these terms, but whatever you want is good for you. It's in your self-interest. I think that's not true. I think a lot of things people want aren't in their self-interest. But even on a Hobbesian account, uh, he thinks, you know, you'd be a fool to be unjust. And you're a fool to be unjust, you know, to steal from people and so forth. Because that kind of activity necessarily puts you at odds with the whole rest of society that has an interest in exposing and destroying you. And to think you can get away with it for long is to think you can outsmart the combined force of all of humanity. And I think he's right that you can't. Uh, you're going to get caught, you're always going to know that you're at risk of getting caught, and if you fail to get caught, it's not due to your shrewdness, but due to luck, because it would only be shrewd if it was a predictable outcome that you'll get away with it. But it's never a predictable outcome that you'll get away with swindling the rest of the human race, behaving in a way that they wouldn't want to have anything to do with you if they understood how you were behaving, when in fact all the things you get of value out of this interaction are things that depend on your continuing to interact with other people.
0: So it seems like a general strategy to a lot of at least the most obvious counterexamples is going to be to say, well, let's look a little more carefully at what this life actually is and really think about, like, is the person really benefiting themselves at the end of the day, all things considered? Um, And it seems like once we subject the life the person's living to that kind of careful scrutiny... In general, it's going to come out, yeah, you know, the more I think about it, this is not a life that I'd want to live.
1: And it's not even that careful scrutiny that's required, right? So, I mean, for some things, it's going to really take care to think about it. And there are really hard decisions about what's in your self-interest or not. But for most people, whether to be a crook or an honest, productive person, I don't think is like that. I think it takes fairly little thought if you're really thinking about it to see like this is no kind of life. Uh, to see that Bernie Madoff would have been better off if he you know was a kind of mediocre, honest investment banker rather than the runner of a ridiculous Ponzi scheme, even before the Ponzi scheme came to its end. I think it doesn 't take much effort to see that, and that 's why i don 't think those kinds of actions are selfish because it 's not like what Madoff was doing or what any kind of crook like this does is plausibly something that you could come up with as good for you if you spent time thinking about like what are the life options open to me what will my life look like if I do one thing or the other what things do I need to make a life for myself that I could be happy with and how does this fit into them I think they are acting on their momentary desires or whims but everyone knows everyone who pauses to think about it knows that what you desire right now might not be good for you The obvious examples are drug addicts and things like this, or just, you know, eating or drinking too much. Um, We all know there are things we sometimes want that we'd be well advised for our own sakes not to do. And I think if you're going to have an idea of well-being or self-interest at all, it has to be distinguished from whatever I want now. If you don't think there's anything that's good for you apart from whatever you want now, you don't even need a concept of well-being. You just need a concept of want. And I think it's clear that people who are just lunging after whatever they want now aren't even trying to act for their own self-interest. That, that's a too complex description of their mental state.
0: Hmm. Okay, so I think we have a pretty good idea of what egoism is now um, as a, um, a theory of you know what it is to do the right thing, roughly. What's altruism?
1: Well, like egoism, altruism is one of these terms that's had a number of uses.
0: I was afraid you were going to say that. Yeah.
1: It was coined by Auguste Comte in the 19th century. And the term egoism had been around considerably prior to that. But Comte created this, this other term that's a kind of contrast to egoism. And the way he saw it, he was one of the theorists who tries to give a whole theory of uh, animal life as well as human life and to integrate um, human ethics into a theory of psychology. And so the way he saw it, and I think it's a common way of thinking about it now, there were like two basic types of drives. That living things have, uh, drives to benefit themselves and drives to benefit other creatures, uh, particularly other species. And he called the former egoistic and the latter altruistic. So egoism and altruism are sort of like two kinds of psychological poles or motivational factors within an organism. So that's as a matter of psychology. And then his view was that the higher the organism, the more altruism predominates. And in the case of human life, altruism is the one that ought to predominate. The whole problem of human life and human social organization is how do we make altruism predominate? And uh, his kind of slogan for acting altruistically was live for others. And that's his motto. So make your life, the whole purpose of your life, about serving others, about living for others, serving humanity as a whole. He says things like, you know, humanity is the only thing that can labor for itself nobly, her servants for the present, but use the materials provided by her servants in the past, uh, that is individual people, for the benefit of her servants in the future. That's a paraphrase, but it's pretty close. So this is Comte's view. And that's what I, if you're going to take altruism as the name of a moral theory, I would say it's Comteism, you know, it's that theory. Um, Altruism is also used in the more psychological sense, actions that are motivated for others. And it's used now, I think, in two senses that are distinct from Comte's. One is to describe actions that are motivated ultimately uh, for other people's sake. So you might not think all actions should be like this, but you might think uh, there are actions like this. And almost every ethical theory says there ought to be some actions like this. You ought to take some actions like this. So we can think of altruism as uh, the view that some altruistic actions are right. And then there's another sense of it, in which it's sort of like the foil to egoism. Because you might think that what conventional, or what a lot of conventional ethical thinking is about, is curbing egoism. Is saying that there's got to be something that trumps your self-interest. And that the reason why Compt's term altruism caught on is because it was identifying the thing that's opposite to self-interest that ought to be driving people. And if that's really what's going on, the serving other people is sort of a placeholder, but there's this kind of basic idea that it can't all be about self. There's got to be something that's higher than self. Then I think you can, although I don't think it's ideal, use the term altruism to mean this sense that there's, morality is about serving something other than or higher than the self. Or put another way, morality is about self-sacrifice or being willing to self-sacrifice. And Rand, who I'm a scholar of and have learned a lot from, she concludes that sort of at its deepest essence, this is what altruism as widely understood and as held as a cultural ideal is about. It's about, she calls it the morality of sacrifice. And whether or not we're going to use altruism as a name for that, I think that is something that is common. I think if you look at moral platitudes particularly the kinds that politicians say when they're trying not to say anything controversial. Um, you often find them saying things like, you know, Michelle Obama saying, service is the price we pay, the rent we pay for a living. Again, possibly not an exact quote. Kerry once said, uh, you know, whatever else divides us, the one thing that should unite us is the idea that the measure of our character is how much we're willing to give of ourselves for others. John Kerry. John Kerry, yeah. And uh, lots of you know presidential candidates in America and other people talk about serving something higher than yourself as that's what's good. So they don't specify what it is so much as it's that it's something higher than yourself. And I think this idea we do find a lot in theoretical ethics. I think particularly since Kant, so before we're talking about Comte with a C, this is Kant, Immanuel Kant, the 18th century German philosopher as opposed to Auguste Comte, the 19th century French philosopher we were just talking about. So Kant draws this um, real distinction between acting from prudence, which is rational but self-interested, right, and acting on motives of duty or morality. And in effect, the whole way that Kant draws out the content of what this duty is, is predicated on this distinction, that it's not based on inclination, which is what prudence is driven by. It's not based on self-interest. And whether or not people agree with Kant's particular views about duty and its content, I think most of moral philosophy subsequent to Kant has been really internalized this distinction between acting prudentially, acting for yourself, and acting morally, and has seen that even as part of what defines the scope of the moral, that it's that which can trump self-interest. So this idea of a morality of self-sacrifice, or a morality that's about putting something above your self-interest, is, I think, really central to philosophical thought from the late 18th century on, uh, maybe even a little earlier. And, you know, we can call that altruism, whether or not it's, you know, sometimes that gets called altruism, though I don't think it's the technically best term for it. And then finally, one other use of this term is that sometimes people just call any action that's benevolent or nice to other people altruistic. But I think that's really misleading, and I, I think that when people do that, It's more theoretically laden, even in common usage, than terms like kind, nice, polite, benevolent. It's assuming when you call holding the door for someone or giving to a charity altruistic. I think there's an assumption built into that, that this is something that's seen as at odds with your self-interest and you do it otherwise.
0: So I certainly agree that altruism is pretty big in our culture. Uh, There just seems to be something very intuitive about the idea that if you put your needs aside and work to help others, uh, like there's maybe some, I think the intuition is that it's more collaborative that way. Um, I spent some time in the Netherlands a few years back and um, that's an even bigger thing there than here. Uh, There's this sort of tradition of like, we all work together to like build the dam so that our whole country doesn't get flooded. So I think that's part of the intuitive appeal. Like, yeah, don't just think about myself. Think about how can I work together in a team with other people to build together the kind of community we want to live in. And, I, you know, I think that's the way to set up, kind of make altruism seem appealing. So, like, what's wrong with that? Isn't that a great way to be collaborative?
1: Well, I think being collaborative is often good. And certainly thinking about others is often good. It's the what place do they play in your thinking? And... Any plausible theory of what's good for you as an individual is going to include lots of working with other people, lots of dealing with other people, lots of having other people's lives go well too. And it'll include them, I think, even as parts of that end of what a good life for you is. But it'll include them at least as means to your ends. So I don't see the valuing of other people or as collaborative effort as a foil to or an objection to egoism, What I see going on with you, you ought to think more of other people, where that's a legitimate concern. I don't see as much different from other things. Like, you ought to think more of the future. You ought to think more about your health. You ought to think more about a lot of things. uh, Is something you can say to someone who's insufficiently taking these things into account. Um, And other people is a big one. But then the question is, why? And if the ultimate answer is, uh, because your life will go better for it. You'll have a life that you enjoy more, that's more worth living, that's a better life for you. Then that's an egoistic answer until this saying you ought to think more to somebody about others isn't in response to egoism. The question is, is the reason really that it's good for them? Or is it that even though this will make your life worse, or regardless of whether it'll make your life better or worse, you ought to do for others or care about the dam or the group And I don't think that's true. And I think it's less plausible when we put it that way.
0: In a way, this seems like the flip side of the point we made earlier about the hypothetical con artist who bilks people out of their money. There, we were taking an example of something somebody might claim to be a case of acting in your own self-interest and showing, without having to do that much work, that really that person isn't acting in their own self-interest. Here, it seems like we have these things that are maybe in some sense like emotionally difficult to do, like sitting down and thinking carefully about the future, you know, investing your resources carefully, caring about other people. These are the types of things that often colloquially get described as sacrifice. But maybe it turns out that once we think about them carefully, they're not sacrifice. They're actually exactly what the doctor ordered in order to live a good life.
1: Well, I mean, that's a substantive claim that they are. And we'd have to think about each of them, and we'll have to think about, like, what is a good human life, which we haven't talked too much about other than trying to liberate ourselves from assumptions that it's getting whatever you want in the moment. But I think ultimately the answer is that these things are part of a good human life for you, for the individual. And recognizing that really changes your perspective on them when you're acting. You don't see them as um, something that, damn it, I have to do, but it's conflicting with uh, what would be best for me. You, You lose a lot of the conflict in life once you recognize that The things that are good for you to do, that it's right for you to do, aren't interjects coming from somewhere else that are harming you, but are actually best for you. A major source of moral conflict and motivation just disappears if it's true that what's right and what's best for you coincide.
0: So would it be correct to say that according to an egoist, what's right for a person to do and what's best for that person are kind of the same thing?
1: Yes, but that's not sort of sufficient for egoism. I think you can hold that and still not quite be an egoist. So if you you think about sort of the tradition of Greek ethics, eudaimonism, as held by Aristotle and Plato and the Stoics, all of those thinkers, I think, would agree that what's right for you to do and what's best for you coincide. And I think it's due to their influence, in fact, that theories of well-being has started to be a, a topic in philosophy again and seen as respectable. I mean, due to their distal influence, more approximately there are people like Anscombe and Foote, and Kraut, and um, Annis and so forth, reviving interest in these people. Um, and now there's a whole field of study of well-being. But I don't think it's clear that all of those philosophers are egoists. I should say, even the interpretation that they all think that what's right and what's best for you always coincide is controversial. I think Kraut would disagree with that interpretation of them, but many people interpret them that way, and and I do. But there's still the question of why do they coincide? So to take a, if something's moral, if something's right to do for reasons wholly other than the contribution it makes to your own self-interest, to your own well-being, and then it's being moral somehow leads to it's being good for you and that's necessarily the case, then I I wouldn't call a view with that characteristic egoistic. Like, suppose there's a God who loves the moral, and what makes it moral is something other than his loving it. It's just some intrinsic feature of the action, like Kant thinks. And then there's this God who will reward you if you do what's moral, and God couldn't but do that because he's good. Right? But in order for you to count as moral, you have to be doing it for some reason other than the reward you're seeking for. If you imagine a view with that kind of structure, I wouldn't call that view egoistic. It's true that according to that view, what's best for you and what's right coincide. Likewise, I think the Stoic view, which doesn't have a God giving rewards like that, but nevertheless has a structure where the account of what makes the action right or noble or virtuous doesn't really make any use of its benefiting you. And then it benefits you because what's good for you to do is to live up to nature and so forth. Again, I think it's weird to call that kind of a view egoistic. I don't think it's right. And even a view like Aristotle's, I, don't, I think it's ambiguous whether it's egoistic uh, because I think there's some ambiguities in his theory. So I think it has to be that in some sense the goodness for you is explanatory of the moral status of the action for it to be egoistic. So they coincide and they coincide because the actions benefiting you or the facts that make it benefit you are the ones that make it count as moral, rather than there being an account of its morality that's wholly independent of its benefit to you, and then its being moral posterior to that uh, enables it to benefit you.
0: Right, so it can't be that the thing benefiting you accidentally always goes along with it being right. It's got to be that's why it's right. Or even
1: necessarily goes along with its being right but it's being good for you follows from it's being right, rather than it's being right follows from it's being good for you. In effect, the goodness for you has to be prior to the rightness, for it to be an egoism. Now there's a, a little bit of a complication to that, uh, because if we're talking about a particular concrete action, at least on my own view, the moral goodness of the action is part of what makes it good for you, but the... the the principles themselves that which we judge individual actions are themselves justified at a kind of uh, broader level by their contribution to one's own life.
0: So as you mentioned before, there are a couple different theories on the market of what self-interest is. Do you have a particular stance on what self-interest is?
1: So most often these days, uh, this issue is put in terms of well-being or sometimes flourishing rather than self-interest. I take it one's self-interest is one's own well-being. And I think there's significant elements of truth in a lot of what's been written about it nowadays. Um, My own view, which is sort of my interpretation of ideas I get from Rand, has elements of several of them. The main idea, though, is I think that both an individual's choice and certain facts about human nature are involved in constituting a self-interest or a well-being for yourself. And I think your well-being is, in effect, your life. And if we think about what life in general is and what an individual's life is, we get a sense of what well-being is. Life is, I think, Rand really aptly characterized it as a process of self-sustaining and self-generated action. So a life is an action. It's something you do. It's not just you're alive versus dead, but your life is all the things going on in you, or a tree's life is all the things going on in it. Which are its life? And what are those things? As opposed to things that just happen to the tree or whatever. Well, it's a process by which the tree sustains itself. I might do other things too, like, you know, reproduce and so forth, but the kind of baseline thing that it is most of the time is keeping itself going. And so we can think about what is that process? And it's different for different organisms. For a tree, it's one kind of process, involves photosynthesis and roots and fruiting and so forth. For a wolf or a squirrel, it's a different process. And for a human being, it's yet another process. Right. So we can think about what a human life is. And I think for an individual person, his well-being is his life. But for it to be a life at all, for it to sustain him, Existentially to keep him alive and to be sustaining spiritually, for it to work, for it to hang together, it's going to have to be a specific sort of life. So we can think about how is it that human beings live. Well, we're rational creatures. We live by using our minds. And in particular, we live by producing values, by creating things that help to sustain us. So I think the two kinds of fundamentals in a human life, there are lots of other values that help to make it up, But the two fundamentals are reason and production. You're thinking and you're creating things. And you're creating the kinds of things that in all the multifarious ways they do, or in one of the multifarious ways in which things do, help to keep human beings alive. Either by, you know, you're farming and you're growing food or you're making technology, or you're doing something that serves a spiritual need that keeps us able to function and be motivated, like making art or whatever it might be. So I think a human life is a life that is centered around these kinds of activities. And there are a lot more than these, but these are the two central ones, right? And then there are millions of, you know, indefinitely many lives that have these features. Uh, They're rational and they're productive. And there are a whole lot of other virtues that go along, I think, are required by this. Just to summarize, rational, productive, there are a lot of other virtues that these require and entail. But no matter how long you make the list of virtues... Uh, there are going to be you know, infinitely many conceivable lives that have these. And your own life is going to be the one of those that you've picked and created for yourself. So I think of a life as a kind of constellation of activities that produce, create, and sustain the kinds of values that are needed for that constellation to continue over a human lifespan. And I think one's own well-being is the set of activities and values of that sort that they've created for themselves. And we can then say things about what it will necessarily include. I've said two of them, reason and being productive. I think there are others that it will also include. Uh, We mentioned earlier human relationships and maintaining good relationships, I think is a part of it. But it's that created set of values that has the characteristic of hanging together into a whole and being self-sustaining is, I think, someone's life. And then that is their well-being. And when we're asking if an action is egoistic, it's does it contribute to that?
0: What would be an example of uh, someone who lived that kind of life that we could point to?
1: I mean, when you're talking about examples of individual people, there will always be controversies. We don't know everything about them, and most people's lives have some exceptions to them. But I'll tell you about some people who I really admire, who I think... um, to a very significant extent and on a grand scale live this kind of life. Um, I think Steve Jobs is a kind of obvious example. This is someone who um, was sort of brilliant, created tremendous value on a grand scale and I think really loved what he was doing and you can see that he loved it. Now in the human relationships part of his life, I think there were more difficulties but even at that, I mean, there are people who really cared about him and he really cared about I think, uh, similarly, someone who I've been reading a bit about recently who I similarly admire is Jeff Bezos. So these are two people in the same field. But I think you can find people, artists, uh, great achievers in many fields who really created great things with their lives, loved what they were doing and saw them as like achieving what they wanted out of life. But, you know, for any moral theory, the kinds of obvious examples are going to be people who did things out of the ordinary. Uh, who did things on a grand scale, which require not just being moral. And I think these people who I mentioned are in the kind of main thrust of their lives, moral on a grand scale. But it also is going to require for them to be, you know, these kind of grand scale exemplars, them being particularly talented and positioned in the world such that they could have grand effects. I think there are plenty of examples of people who, you know, wouldn't be famous, who are nonetheless, they love what they're doing with their lives, they're thoughtful about how the different parts of their lives fit together, they are deeply and passionately committed to their values, and they understand the need to act on some principles to achieve those values over time. They've internalized principles like honesty, rationality, integrity, as you know they're just the natural way for them to act, and they see them... As good for themselves, whether they would identify that, you know, as a moral philosopher might, I don't know. But in the moment, they're not. Uh, they see cheating or compromising their product as, uh, you know, something that would be anathema to them, anathema to who they are and what they want to be and what they want their life to be like. If you think about, you know, what Steve Jobs would feel like about the idea of adding a bunch of, you know, bloatware to an iPhone or something, uh, and the kind of visceral horror you imagine him having at that and I think that's a really moral reaction Uh, there are a lot of people who have the equivalent of that for the things in their own work and their own lives and it's the kind of people who really love their children for example and who have the kind of attitudes towards themselves that they have towards their children and that a good parent would have towards them the other thing that stands out about all these people who I'm giving exemplars both the famous types of people and the you know people you meet every day who are like this, some of them profoundly so, some of them to a lesser extent. Is there people who are really taking responsibility for their own lives and their own happiness? They're seeing it as uh, something they have to achieve, and they don't take the fact it's up to them to achieve it as like um, a drag, something they you know, damn it, I wish life could just be easy and just happen but they see it as something that they want to do. It's important and it matters to them that their lives are achievements. Uh,
0: So thanks, those examples are really helpful. Um, What about an example of a person who typically gets talked about as a great admirable person, but maybe once we examine their life and actions through an egoist lens, uh, comes out to be not quite everything they were cracked up to be?
1: Well, one example that occurs to me not to be too controversial is Jesus this is someone who, what did he do with his life? Right? He went around preaching to take no thought for the morrow. You don't have any responsibility for really what happens to you. It's not the one who reaps and sows that creates the harvest, but God. Um, So it's a kind of anti-responsibility, anti-causal perspective on the world, very different from the achieving your own happiness view that I was talking about before. And, The idea that there's some moral order, whether you call it God or duty or a categorical imperative, to reference the Kantian term, that you're beholden to, that your being beholden to it isn't about causes and effects in the world. It's not about achieving anything. Uh, There's no intelligible to you in terms of your life on earth meaning or purpose to it. And yet you ought to do it and sacrifice your happiness to it. And there are a lot of varieties of it. I referenced Jesus and Kant both in different ways in talking about this. Um, you can think about people like Mother Teresa who is, or at least more so in the 80s and now was a hero to many people, not because of any great work they thought she accomplished or anything that they thought she wanted out of life, but because she was seen as someone, and I think she was legitimately someone, who gave up a lot of comfort, who gave up what would have been better for herself, not even to actually accomplish anything for the poorest of the poor, but just to um, be around them and tell them how good suffering was. Or to take um, another example, think of the current effective altruism movement, people like uh, Peter Singer and there are others. Now,
0: And that's pretty big outside of the academy too.
1: Yes, it is big outside of the academy. Now, I think oftentimes you know, giving to charity is a good thing. There are all kinds of causes that are worth supporting. And if you are going to support a charitable cause, it's, I think, morally obligatory on you to think about, well, what is my money actually accomplishing? So when you think about effective altruism as opposed to indiscriminate charity, I think uh, some of what they're advocating for is good. And some of the organizations that rate different charities are, it's a good thing that those have been added to the world. But if you think about the kind of moral propaganda that goes around with it, if you watch Singer's talks on this, right, there's the idea that a life led for yourself has got to be a um, this on some kind of hedonistic rat race or treadmill. It's this idea you also find in Comte that when you're doing something for yourself, it's an alternation between feverish you know, desire satisfaction of some momentary lust and um torpor, right? You get this same idea, um, that that's what a selfish life would be like. And then the alternative that we're given to that is to serve other people, to minister to the needs of others, not so that they could do something more, but presumably they're meant to be ministering to the needs of others in turn and so forth and if anybody were living for himself or acting for himself, he'd just be satisfying some momentary desire, scratching an itch. And that gives no meaning to life. So the only meaning to life is to help other people have fewer itches to scratch. I think that whole doctrine and the kind of life that's devoted to spreading that, I don't think is an admirable kind of life. I think it's a life that's about upholding um, the pointless relief of suffering. And I call it pointless because the point of relieving suffering is to make possible something greater than that. And if you don't really value what people can make of and do with their lives, uh, then I don't think um, there's any moral value to being fixated on suffering. If you do, on the other hand, and you really want to see you know, people in societies that are now poor uh, prosper and people who are down on their luck prosper, because you have a vision of what's possible to human beings. And you're trying to achieve that for yourself. And you want other people to be able to achieve it. And you understand, this isn't something that we talked about, but you understand that it's good for each of us in achieving that kind of life to have other people doing it around us. And therefore you're thinking about what can I do to help these other uh, people in other places succeed better, and how can I perhaps make it part of my life in one way or another, part of my career, part of my hobby, my advocacy goal, to help other people achieve the kinds of things that I'm trying to achieve in my life, maybe other people who haven't had the luck or breaks I have, then I think that's really admirable. And, and there are people who are on that premise, who are you know, devoting themselves to charity and to other causes. But if you think about the kinds of charismatic leaders who are admired of um, charitable movements, often they're more in this uh, Jesus mold.
0: And with that, now that we've uh, driven away all of our Christian listeners, um, Greg Salmieri, thanks so much for coming back on Elucidations a third time and benefiting me.
1: Well, thank you. I think I've benefited from it too and from my earlier appearances.
0: The Elucidations blog has moved. We are now located at elucidations.now.sh. On the blog, you can find our full back catalog of previous episodes. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out on Twitter at, at @elucidations_pod. Thanks again for listening.